Hello everyone and welcome to CRAMSurge, clinical research appraisal and methodology for surgical trainees, where we pick a paper fresh from the press on a hot general surgical topic. We review it for you, we present it for you, we critique its methodology for you and provide top-of-the-field expert opinion and teaching on research appraisal and methodology. My name is Gio Perrin and together with Professor Sabobala Subramanian and Maria Digby, we bring you Kramsurge from the wonderful region of the Yorkshire and the Humber. Welcome back everyone. Uh, today we're going to have a look at uh, a paper entitled Double Fecal Immunochemical Testing in Patients with Symptoms Suspicious of Colorectal Cancer. Um, this will be followed by a teaching session from Professor Saba on the limitations of randomized controlled trials. I'll leave you to it. Thank you, Gilles and uh, Prof. Balantubramanian for give, uh, giving me this opportunity. I am Yuki, I'm currently a trainee in Yorkshire. Um, and today we're going to look at the paper that looked at double fecal immunochemical uh, testing in patients with symptoms of um, symptoms suspicious of colorectal cancer um, that was done in Scotland. Right, a few words about the background for um, this study. Uh, well, we do know that feed testing have been implemented quite extensively in the past few, uh, well, you'd argue even decades, uh, as part of uh, bowel cancer screening programs, both in the UK and uh, beyond. Um, the aim would be to identify bowel cancer at an early stage where treatment is more accessible or successful. Now, um, Yuki, um, does um, doing feed testing for screening prevent um, colorectal cancer? No, unfortunately, it doesn't um, because it's not particularly good at detecting adenoma specifically. So, no, it doesn't prevent that. True story. Um, does it reduce mortality at all? So it doesn't reduce mortality. However, it only reduces colorectal cancer-related mortality. Um, yeah. The overall survival remains the same, screening or no screening. And that's what we found. Yeah, that seems to be the case for most of the screening strategies, with the exception of a flexible sigmoidoscopy. That's kind of the only screening strategy that has been demonstrated to somehow affect overall survival in a positive way. And final question about the FIT test. Uh, is it good for all colonic cancers? Um, not for all colonic cancers, but it's better for left-sided in particular, left-sided colorectal cancers. In yes, and... Uh, uh, because I'm a bit cheeky, that was not the last question. Uh, are left-sided cancer more common in men or women? In men. Oh, gosh, I'm being put on the hot seat now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course you are. Uh, yeah, so you'd argue that uh, to a certain extent, adopting fit testing um, does uh, perhaps um, reduce the pickups on right-sided cancers. And that relates to the uh, probably the deterioration of the hemoglobin uh, across uh, its passage through the colon, although no one really knows for sure. Um, in the recent years, as we were discussing before we started presenting the paper, um, a variety of pathways have been described to uh, attempt um, to use a single test as uh, sort of a streamlining uh, type uh, um, uh, test uh, to determine whether a patient needs a colonoscopy at all or more or less urgently. And uh, we don't know that the international threshold for considering a test positive is sort of 10 micrograms of hemoglobin um, per uh, gram of feces. Um, 
ball back to Yuki for a bit more on aims. Um, now, so looking at this paper, the aims of this study was to define the diagnostic performance of a single fit compared with testing twice in succession in sequential cohorts of patients referred with symptoms suspicious of colorectal cancer. Now, they looked at patients that had an urgent or urgent suspected of cancer primary referral with high risk of lower GI symptoms. And the, the intervention was the double fit test, which was compared to a single fit test. And the diagnostic performance uh, was looked at uh, in terms of outcomes and investigation following that fit test, uh, whether it was colorectal cancer, advanced adenoma, advanced colorectal neoplasia, inflammatory bowel disease, and significant bowel pathologies that were detected. Good. So um, this is basically um, a large core study uh, with two sequential cohorts. Um, the um, selection criteria were related to the original primary care referral. Uh, so as you can mention, urgent or urgent suspected of cancer. Uh, now, a few uh, different types of symptoms were included um, as eligible for, for this study. Uh, PR bleeding, changing bowel habits, the presence of an abdominal or rectal mass, weight loss, um, abdominal pain, in presence or absence of either, all of the above in presence or absence of either. Now, there's a few sort of caveats to this that I think are worth mentioning. Um, one is that uh, you wouldn't necessarily consider an endoluminal investigation for someone that's been referred query palpable rectal mass. Either you can feel it or you can't feel it. You don't necessarily need a colonoscopy if you can't feel it. And uh, weight loss is often um, assessed in slightly different ways, uh, not necessarily with a, a lower GI endoluminal investigation in the first place. Um, these patients were then subdivided basically in two cohorts. Uh, the first one was a single fit test cohort from January 2019 to February 2020. The second one uh, was started in March 2020 and carried on till July 2021. And is a double fit cohort where patients would get sent two kits to be taken um, apart from each other. Uh, the important thing is that they take it in two different pools. Um, on average, this was 13 days apart. Um, known inflammatory bowel diseases and uh, people undergoing bowel cancer screening or having had investigations as part of an emergency admission uh, were excluded from this um, study. Uh, Bo, back to Yuki for a bit more about the methods. Now, speaking a bit more about the endpoints and the outcomes of this paper, um, those that were fit positive went on to have further investigation via an endoscopy and CT. And they either found a normal endoscopy or CT, uh, colorectal cancer, or advanced adenoma, which was defined as a polyp in the colon or the rectum with one of the following features, such as a 10 millimeter, um, the size of it being more and or equal than 10 millimeters, as documented by the endoscopist, um, with it being, uh, with, uh, sorry, um, a villous architecture on the histology was found or a high-grade dysplasia. And they also found inflammatory bowel disease or significant bowel pathologies defined as either advanced or colorectal neoplasia or IBD. Um, and the electronic uh, records were then reviewed for at least a minimum of 12 months follow-up and 24 months for a single fit. Um, back to you, Gio. Excellent. So let's start looking at the results. So 
Um, all the referrals that were sent through were uh, looked at by a consultant. Some of those referrals were excluded as deemed uh, not eligible. Uh, and following this sort of streaming process, um, we are left with 2,260 patients in a single fit cohort. And uh, um, in total, uh, 3,426 patients in the intended double fit cohort. Of those, 2,637 had both tests. Now, this table tells you that roughly the two patient, patient groups are pretty similar with each other in terms of age, uh, as well as uh, gender ratios. Um, there are, however, some differences in the type of symptoms that get referred in. And if you remember, if you look at the timings of the two cohorts, the cohorts uh, with a double fit uh, actually starts pretty much as the first COVID lockdown uh, kicked into place. So um, as you can see, there um, are significantly more instances of an abdominal or rectal mass uh, in the double fit cohort and less patients that are referred with iron deficiency anemia in the double fit cohort, perhaps reflecting the fact that the primary care physician actually had um, a significant more worry for these patients before referring them in, which could potentially cause a degree of selection in the patients that are uh, ultimately ending up in a double fit cohort. Uh, but we'll, we'll uh, um, discuss about this later on as well. Uh, Ball back to Yuki for a bit more. So the, um, the primary outcome of this paper, what they found was the um, application of double test protocol using the higher of the two FIT results, which is essentially the FIT max, um, increased the sensitivity to 96.6%, as you can see in the rock curve that's shown in the slide, uh, when they compared it to the double FIT cohort and the single FIT cohort. Um, I think what's interesting is also the those that had two negative fit tests, the colorectal cancer prevalence was 0.17%, which suggests the number needed to investigate was 606. Um, back to you, Gio. Wonderful. Um, so this table uh, gives you a sort of a breakdown in details of uh, uh, all the results with uh, sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value, and negative predictive value, as well as number needed to investigate. Uh, now, what I want to draw your attention on is actually the rightmost um, column, uh, where you can see the percentage of improvement compared to a single test that you would have with a um, double test considering fit max, so the highest of the two results. Um, as the, the, the relevant uh, one. Um, the authors also do conduct a, a sort of first fit test versus fit max uh, comparison, which we will be talking about. But as you can see, um, adopting two fit tests pretty much scores you better um, on nearly uh, every single one of the um, outcomes considered by the authors with the exception of IBD. Um, ball back to Yuki. Now, just be looking at the secondary outcomes. The sensitivity was improved in the detection of advanced colorectal neoplasia with 81.6% versus 64.4%. It was also improved in significant bowel pathology, which is 83% versus 67.4%. Um, in those that completed the double fit compared with the single fit cohort. And just looking at the subgroup analysis from the paper, um, it was interesting to find that the first fit performed better at identifying colorectal cancers in the double fit test cohort, 
compared with the previous single fit test cohort with a sensitivity of actually 93.3%. Um, back to you, Gio. And this is the uh, sort of table that summarizes the analysis I was telling you about. So as you can see, uh, if you look at the uh, fit one, so the first fit sent by the patient in the double fit cohort versus the fit max, you can see that there is uh, a significant sort of improvement in terms of a reduction of mispathology um, pretty much across the board. Uh, ball back to you, Yuki, for some limitations. Yeah, so um, looking at the limitations that the paper themselves have reported, um, it's obviously notable that in the double fit test uh, cohort, there was a reduction in endoscopy, especially um, the double fit test cohort received the test during the COVID-19 period. Um, not all patients in the double fit cohort completed both tests with the reasons of before even receiving the second test, they, are, they had their investigations done. Um, and the analyzer that was used in this study uh, used a limited analysis below 10 micrograms hemoglobin per gram. Uh, so a few more points that we uh, picked up. So I already mentioned that some of perhaps the referrals they are sent through or streamed uh, as eligible for this study do not necessarily need endoluminal investigations or CTC, but all of the ones that are included actually had them, uh, unless they somehow declined to have them or did not attend. Um, the authors um, do talk about iron deficiency anemia quite a lot, uh, and they actually talk about a variety of um, corrector cancers that are um, happening concomitantly with iron deficiency anemia, but have a negative fit test. Um, the issue I take with that is that they don't really provide a good definition of iron deficiency anemia. Um, and as you, any of you that have worked in colorectal know that we pretty much investigate anything, macrocytic, normocytic, microcytic anemias, uh, iron deficiency without anemia, and the slow variability between different trusts. So, um, it becomes hard to pinpoint uh, how much that is uh, relevant. Um, as mentioned, uh, the type of referrals appear to be slightly different in the two cohorts, and that might very well have been um, due to um, COVID. Um, more CTCs are performed in the double uh, fit test cohort, and that's probably, uh, as Yuki mentioned, and as the author mentioned as well, because of uh, COVID itself. So um, preference was given to um, CT colonogram. Um, it's not as good as endoscopy at detecting microscopic colitis, particularly. So that might explain why um, there is perhaps not that much of a benefit in, in IBD because they're not detected as often uh, in a CTC. Um, the authors do not calculate or provide any data for likelihood ratios, um, which I've calculated for you uh, below in that table. Um, if I told you how long it took me, that'd be probably embarrassing. Um, but uh, I think this is a, so some sort of relevant numbers. Um, as you can see, a single test is superior to a double test in terms of positive likelihood ratio. And you would expect that because if you do two tests, you're more likely to find more false positives. Um, so your denominator will become bigger. Uh, but the negative uh, likelihood ratios um, are uh, superior in the double test. So they are smaller uh, to 0.05. Um, that kind of suggests that this would be a very good rule out test. As my understanding is that anything below 0.1 
would be considered a pretty good, pretty good rollout test. Um, few more points. Uh, we um, talked about right and left cancers uh, being picked up differently by fit. Um, the authors don't provide any data about where the cancers that were picked up were. Um, and finally, um, there certainly are, as you'll experience that routinely, discrepancies between what a patient gets referred in with and what the patient actually does have when they come to clinic. Um, and that can um, sort of uh, alter quite a lot the reliability of these results when they're based purely on uh, um, primary um, care referrals. Um, ball back to Yuki for some conclusions. So um, the conclusion of this paper is uh, they suggested that double testing reduced missed colorectal cancers and other significant bowel pathology rates with a modest impact on workload is what we found um, following um, reviewing this paper, um, which is obviously an interesting uh, thing to discover in terms of putting it to practice and what the future holds with double fit tests. As usual, we discussed a few points after the presentation, particularly we discussed the timing uh, and purpose of the choice of introducing a double uh, fecal immunochemical testing in uh, patients included in this study. Uh, obviously, uh, the timing of the implementation coincides almost exactly with the start of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, across uh, Europe. Uh, despite um, having a good look through the paper, we couldn't really find a specific reason uh, why the authors would choose to start um, this double testing protocol exactly at that time point. But we uh, are also conscious of the fact that this implementation does obviously require approval and funding. Therefore, we can't imagine this being um, designed and approved so quickly uh, after it was clear that COVID-19 was starting to affect Europe. So we'll ask the authors about this and uh, we'll get back to you. Um, these uh, timely coincidence um, obviously somehow affects uh, the referrals um, and the type of patients that are included in the double feed code and potentially could affect results as demonstrated by differences between referrals in the single feet and double feed cohorts. Uh, we then discussed what the rationale for conducting a study like this would be. That is to say, are we implementing a double testing strategy in order to delay or in order not to perform at all investigations in certain subsets of patients? And we then discussed um, who would be the best person to determine a threshold below which um, we wouldn't be performing tests or we would be delaying tests. Obviously, it depends on who you ask. Uh, in terms of greater health economics, um, probably uh, adopting a threshold um, similar to what the authors report, particularly considering the likelihood negative likelihood ratios we discussed, uh, would be acceptable. However, would this be acceptable for patients as well? Uh, this is something that uh, becomes difficult to determine just based on the results of this study. So we're going to ask these questions as well as a variety of other ones that we highlighted during the presentation um, to the authors and we'll let you know. So we've talked about randomized clinical trials before. There are a couple of uh, um, YouTube videos on that. Um, and I'll, I'll therefore presume uh, you have some uh, insight into randomized controlled trials. And I'm going to talk um, today about just a couple of 
important limitations of randomized controlled trials. So this is not an exhaustive discussion of all limitations. I think we'll need to do another um, talk to cover all of the limitations. So uh, you probably know that RCTs are the gold standard in study design. Uh, RCTs do have flaws, but this is considered to be the best of what is available. And they form the basis of systematic reviews and meta-analysis, which are what we refer to as the level one evidence. So, um, and you have to do RCTs um, if you require, um, if you think that your new innovation or intervention um, ought to be recommended in clinical practice and be incorporated into guidelines. And also, um, having data from RCTs really provides a basis of uh, um, decision making. Um, your discussions with the patients based uh, usually um, should be based on results of RCTs if they're available. And you take patient values and preferences into account and then uh, make your decisions. However, there are some issues with RCTs and we're going to discuss a couple today. The most important thing um, you need to think about when you're looking at an RCT is external validity. So if you assume that the RCT has been uh, done to a really good standard, um, if you think that they've done, uh, they've done their best to avoid biases as much as they possibly can, then you're thinking whether you can apply the results of the RCTs to your own practice that is what we mean by um, the phrase external validity, right? So I'm going to talk to you very briefly about an example um, from uh, my own area of expertise, which is in thyroid cancer. There's this paper on thyroidectomy with or without radioiodine in patients with low-risk thyroid cancer that was published just a few months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. So when you um, see or come across a paper in the NEJM, you think, oh, that must be really good quality. That's something that uh, we've got to uh, look into and uh, see if we can apply the results to our practice. So what they did, did in this NEJM paper, and this is a multicenter study in France, where they compared um, people with low-risk thyroid cancer who had radioiodine with people who did not have radioiodine. So essentially, they're looking at the value of radioiodine ablation after total thyroidectomy in patients with low-risk thyroid cancer, just to see if radioiodine was essential. So this was a non-inferiority trial uh, with the hope uh, of proving non-inferiority in the no-radioiodine group. And therefore, uh, if that was the case, then we could avoid uh, radioiodine in these low-risk patients. And uh, I'll go straight to the results of the trials. Um, essentially, they're looking at events, cancer-related events at three years, and they showed that there wasn't a significant difference in the events. When we say events, we mean cancer recurrence in one form or the other, and they found no difference uh, in uh, uh, the two groups, that the group that did not have radioiodine and the group that had radioiodine after total thyroidectomy for low-risk thyroid cancer. And here's another uh, figure that again shows the different types of events, cancer-related events. And in thyroid cancer, when we, when we talk about um, events, we mean either structural events when there, there is obvious evidence of recurrent cancer on imaging and on biopsy. Sometimes we talk about functional events. That means there is radioiodine uptake. Uh, when you give um, iodine, 
um, to these patients. And the third kind of event is biologic event, which essentially refers to the tumor marker, i.e. thyroglobulin, uh, going up in patients and that being a marker of biochemical recurrence. So essentially, there's no difference in the event rate between the no radioiodine group and the radioiodine group. Okay, so um, that uh, sounds really good. So essentially, you will think that um, if you go by the NEGM trial and follow their conclusions, then you probably do not need to give radioiodine uh, in these patients, because that's what the conclusion says, that uh, follow-up alone without radioiodine was not inferior to radioiodine therapy uh, over a three-year period. <clears throat> However, if you look into the methodology and go through the details of surgery that these patients had, so we said thyroidectomy, um, but what about the extent of thyroidectomy and the possibility that some of these patients may have had a lymph nodal dissection. And it transpires that over 40% of these patients in this trial had a neck dissection. And when we say neck dissection, we mean either a central neck dissection, which is dissection of lymph nodes around the thyroid and in the thyroid bed, and a lateral neck dissection, or some people call, um, refer to this as selective neck dissection. And over 25% of these patients had a lateral or selective neck dissection. Now, that's really interesting. If you're a thyroid cancer expert or if you're a thyroid surgeon, then you will know that at least in the UK and also in the US, neck dissection isn't necessarily done routinely in low-risk patients. And in fact, the American Thyroid Association uh, rec um, suggests that neck dissection is not recommended for these low-risk tumors, T1, T2 tumors. So that is a big problem. So if you uh, are in the UK and you do um, total thyroidectomy for these patients and you do not do neck dissection, you really cannot generalize the results of this paper in the NEJM where over 40% of patients had a neck dissection because this is a different group of patients. And as the NEGM paper says, radioiodine is not, not necessary uh, in this group of patients. These group of patients aren't the same that uh, that you will see in the UK where you don't do uh, neck dissections. The other issue um, in this paper was the primary endpoint was what we would call a composite endpoint, which was looking at a variety of cancer-related events, including um, so-called functional events. Now, you might remember that a couple of minutes ago, I said that functional events uh, referred to the presence of radioiodine uptake outside of the neck. And if you think about it, you'll only look for radioiodine uptake in patients who had radioiodine. In patients who did not have radioiodine, there is no scope uh, or for demonstrating uptake uh, with radioiodine. And therefore, these kinds of events are only possible in the radioiodine group. So it's not a fair comparison um, of uh, cancer-related events um, in the iodine group and the no iodine group if you're not going to observe radioiodine uptake in the no iodine group. So I hope that makes sense. So this is a really good example, I thought, um, of a um, trial that is done really well, but um, suffers from the inability to um, generalize the results to populations where the underlying treatment, i.e. the underlying surgical treatment, is going to be very different. Okay, so let's move on 
to another limitation or, or another um, issue with randomized controlled trials. Now, a good thing about randomized controlled trials is that you can evaluate not just the primary outcome, but a range of uh, secondary outcomes in a very rigorous manner. And they can be used to um, help you make decisions. For example, um, you can look at cancer recurrence, you can look at survival, you can look at quality of life, um, you can look at specific side effects of the treatment you're evaluating and compare them in the different groups in your RCT. However, the question uh, often that arises uh, is whether the outcomes that you plan to evaluate, have they been fully reported in the trials? And there are a couple of studies um, whose links I provide at the bottom of the screen who have evaluated this specific question in randomized controlled trials that have been published in the literature. And what they find is that the outcome reporting um, in the results section is often incomplete. When they compare um, the outcomes that were planned to be analyzed in either these trial protocols or the method sections of the RCTs, when they compare that with what the results actually show, they find that many outcome reporting is incomplete. And the interesting thing is that the incomplete outcome reporting seems to be linked with non-significant results. In other words, if the results uh, for specific outcomes are not significantly different, they don't seem to be reported in full. Right. So that is a, a significant problem because you're hoping that the RCTs would be transparent about how they're going to uh, uh, report on all the outcomes they plan to measure. Right. The next question is whether outcomes of RCTs are the same as those in real life. Now, you would expect that RCTs would be of better quality compared to observational studies and that RCTs are less susceptible to bias, and that they produce a more, um, provide a more realistic estimate of the effect of the interventions, right? And therefore, um, you would expect that the results of RCTs would be consistent with the results that you see in real life. And this specific question was explored by uh, a team um, in 2020, and that was when their paper was published. And what they looked at was uh, 19 different treatments in 19 different settings, where at least one RCT and one observational study was available. Uh, they reviewed all of these, um, they reviewed the literature on all of these treatments. And they found, interestingly and reassuringly, that the results from RCTs were not different to the results of observational studies. And if you look at that paper, and this is a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was one example that we could all relate to as uh, surgeons or surgical trainees, and that was um, studies comparing laparoscopic versus open appendicectomy. Now, I've got this forest plot from that paper um, here on, on the right-hand side of the screen, and this forest plot basically lists the observational studies and the randomized controlled trials and the effects um, and the effect sizes um, comparing laparoscopy and open uh, procedure. And you can see here, if you look at the observational studies and the 
um, summary effect size of the observational studies, you can see that laparoscopy seems to perform better. And this is with regards to infection rate after appendicectomy. And then if you look at the RCTs, there are a number of RCTs here, and then you've got the um, summary effect size of all of the RCTs combined. And you can see that the summary effect size uh, from RCTs also shows that laparoscopy is better compared to open appendicectomy. And this is very similar to the summary of the observational studies. So that is very good. And that is very reassuring that you've got um, an example here um, where, wherein the results of RCTs seem to be very similar to the results of observational studies. And both of these sets of studies are showing that laparoscopy is better. However, you've got to keep in mind that this doesn't always happen. And I'm going to um, talk about examples from vascular surgery literature. And anyone who's done uh, any period of time in vascular surgery, uh, hopefully uh, will relate to these examples. The first example is this controversy or debate over whether um, surgical carotid endotrectomy um, is better um, or worse than um, carotid artery stenting for carotid artery stenosis. So if you've done vascular surgery, you will know that the um, surgeons and radiologists debate about this um, and have debated about this for quite some time. So if you look at the RCTs comparing endotrectomy and stenting for stenosis, the RCTs show that there's no difference between stroke and death rates. However, if you look at observational studies, and um, there's a nice uh, paper from two, three years ago that summarized the results of these observational studies and the RCTs. And, uh, and it's clear from the summary of observational studies that the stroke and death rates are much higher after carotid artery stenting. So the interventional radiologists uh, are not too happy about this, understandably, but it looks like in real life, it is not as good as what the RCTs would suggest, okay? Another example um, is the treatment for ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, ruptured AAA. So again, there's a debate about whether endovascular aneurysm repair is better or whether open uh, or the traditional surgical repair is better. And the RCTs show no difference between uh, um, EVAR and open surgical repair in terms of mortality. But the observational studies interestingly show that e with EVAR, you've got a reduced 30-day mortality. Okay, so you can see here, here two examples in surgical literature wherein there is a significant difference between the results of RCTs and the results of observational studies. Now, some might call observational studies real life, while others might say observational studies are much more biased or they have a much uh, greater tendency to produce biased results compared to RCTs. And the other thing you've got to think about is that these observational studies may have been done before RCTs uh, were published, or they might have been done after RCTs were published. And again, the techniques and the technologies might have changed. Now, I think it's worthwhile thinking why we get different results in RCTs and observational studies. So I've listed down some uh, potential reasons specifically relating to the vascular surgery literature. But, but uh, you can extrapolate these, these reasons to lots of other surgical settings. So the first thing is to, uh, is to think about the inclusion and exclusion criteria or the, or the eligibility criteria for RCTs. Uh, 
and also the role that the clinician and the patients play in making a decision of whether to participate in the RCT. Yeah, so you know the clinicians enroll patients into RCTs and they may be biased towards one treatment or the other and they and that bias will significantly impact uh, on whether the patient that they see is going to be enrolled in the RCT or not. And patients will have uh, will come with their own perceptions, with their own uh, beliefs, and they will uh, decide whether they're going to get enrolled uh, depending on a variety of influences that they've been subject to. So um, in some of these EVAR trials, the endovascular aneurysm repair trials, uh, they found that only 20% of patients eligible to get participate in the trial actually took part. Okay, so that could account for some of the differences you see between RCTs and observational studies. Another potential reason is uh, the expertise that is available and the potential halo effect that you see in RCTs. What does that mean? Uh, you could argue that RCTs are done in high volume centers, RCTs are done um, in situations where there are experts available to do the ER, um, EVAR, or even the open surgery, and therefore. Um, the, the people involved in providing treatment in RCTs might be quite different to the people providing the treatment in uh, real life or in observational studies. The other thing to think about is that in RCTs, if you get allocated a particular treatment, doesn't necessarily mean you'll receive that treatment. There would be what we call protocol deviations. And uh, uh, as an example, in one of the EVAR trials, less than 50% of patients allocated to receive EVAR as part of the randomized control trial actually received EVAR, less than 50%. So that's a huge uh, proportion of patients who are not receiving their allocated treatment. And you can imagine how that can significantly affect the results of the RCT. Finally, um, I think it's important to keep in mind that in the real world, although two treatment options may be available, Sometimes the clinicians with their expertise and with their judgment would uh, decide that a particular treatment would work more favorably for one patient compared to the other treatment. And therefore, um, in real life, there's a bit more tailoring of treatments to uh, individual uh, situations, patient situations or the disease situations. So a certain aneurysms may not be suitable for EVA based on the location, the anatomy, patient habitus, and so on and so forth. So um, unlike in RCTs, where if you fit the inclusion exclusion criteria, you will be randomly allocated by the computer in, in uh, observational studies in real life, the, the expert clinician might decide. And in some instances, that might be favorable. Okay, so the next um, thing to discuss um, that I thought would be relevant um, to discussion about outcomes is uh, the impact or the ability of RCTs to study short-term outcomes versus long-term outcomes. Obviously, when, we, when you are designing RCTs, you're limited by the period uh, of follow-up and you will be placing a lot of emphasis on short or medium-term outcomes and long-term outcomes can be difficult to factor in when you're uh, designing RCTs, when you're applying for funding. And, um, and that is a problem because there are certain long-term outcomes that you genuinely be interested in that you simply can't measure. And although you can measure some short-term outcomes, they don't necessarily um, uh, reflect 
the long-term outcomes, or in other words, short-term outcomes are not necessarily good surrogates for long-term outcomes. And um, a good example of this that I've come across in the surgical literature, because I'm looking for examples from surgical literature to have these discussions, is in the cardiac surgery literature when they discuss the value of coronary artery bypass graft, uh, grafting and whether you should do it on pump or off pump. Now, uh, traditionally, if you're doing a coronary artery bypass graft, you'll put the patient on a bypass machine. Yeah, that's the on-pump uh, way of doing it. Uh, and then um, uh, people then thought that uh, putting patients on the bypass machine required a manipulation of the aorta and increased risk of stroke. And then people uh, started to do bypass on the beat beating heart. That's what uh, they refer to as the off-pump. You've got to keep in mind that I'm no expert here. Um, so there was this debate between on-pump and off-pump uh, CABG. And there were a number of studies that said, well, if you're able to um, do the anastomosis on the beating heart, at least in the short term, you will have a number of benefits. And there were some studies to that effect. But um, if you look at the long-term uh, impact or the long-term benefits and risks of um, off-pump uh, CABG, the long-term studies uh, um, show that the mortality is actually better in the on-pump group. And I've got this table from this paper published uh, four or five years ago that shows that the mortality um, is, uh, is favors the on-pump group. And so this is a good example, I think, where the short-term outcomes might favor one arm, whereas the long-term outcomes might favor the other arm. And that, therefore, that's important to keep in mind when you're uh, looking at an RCT of a new technology you might be interested in to uh, think about whether um, important long-term outcomes have been incorporated in the RCT. And if not, whether it is possible that despite some short-term benefits, there might be some long-term um, adverse sequelae. Okay, so... Um, although RCTs provide the basis for level one evidence, you've got to think about uh, the potential limitations. We've discussed just a couple here. Um, so the most important thing or the first thing that we discussed was that the results of RCTs may not be generalizable to your own practice. Uh, and that the results may not be in sync with uh, observational studies. Okay, the second thing we discussed uh, is that um, you've got to think about whether um, long-term outcomes have been studied. Uh, you've got to accept that in many, many RCTs, long-term outcomes are very difficult to incorporate. And um, given that uh, there is this distinct possibility that the long-term outcomes may not necessarily be as favorable uh, or in line with the short-term results. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. Until next time, keep ramming your life with our surgical podcast.